Uh, well, I want to say thanks. A lot of you asked me on the way in how I'm feeling. I feel great. Um, for those of you who weren't aware, it was almost exactly a year ago that I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer and they took out my whole thyroid. And uh, initially I didn't feel great though, because they didn't, they didn't set my thyroid level quite high enough. So um, the way I knew that was I was sitting in my office and I had a down coat on and a heater at my feet and I was shivering, right? And, and I was raised in New York, right? So I love the cold weather and I was just like bone cold. And Tristy's like, yeah, now you know how it feels, right? Because she's always cold. I'm never cold. I was just freezing. So I went back to my doctor and she bumped my level once and she bumped it a second time, bumped it a third time, kept bumping it up. And I told her during one of our conversations, I said, I, you know, I understand how you, how you set these things, right? You have you have a range, and the range is based on, on averages of people, but you need to understand something. I run hot, right? I mean, I got, I'm on the high end of the scale because I got lots of energy, and so don't put me in the middle or on the low end, right? Put me up here, and she, she kind of laughed at me. She said, well, okay, I get that, Brian, but like, if I give you too much of this, you're, you're going to have heart palpitations, right? Your, your heart's going to get out of rhythm, and, you know, which is called, I looked it up, it's called arrhythmia, right? Your heart's too fast, it's too slow, it skips a beat, it gets out of rhythm. She said, so I can't give you too much of this thing. I go, all right, well, I'm, I'm right where I need to be then, right? Because I'm feeling good again. I got energy, but I don't want to get out of rhythm. And I also, I don't want to miss the opportunity uh, from cancer experience to get a good illustration. <laughs> so so uh, maybe you could see where this is going. In our spiritual world, sometimes our hearts get out of rhythm. Right? If the physical heart gets out of rhythm, all of life is out of rhythm because life flows from the heart. Spiritually, it's the same thing. When something other than our love for the Lord becomes the center of our lives, we experience spiritual arrhythmia. We're out of, we're out of sync. We're out of rhythm with the Lord. And so the Lord gives us uh, patterns and practices so that he remains the very center of our lives. Uh, if you're not there already, turn to Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to look at the, the patterns that the Lord gave to Israel. And as Matt's been going through the series on the Pentateuch, maybe you noticed that uh, the Jews in and of themselves aren't, aren't really necessarily that remarkable of a people, right? They're uh, extremely stubborn, literally in Hebrew, stiff-necked. Right? They're, they're difficult to lead. There's not a lot of them. They're not a huge nation. They're, they're not powerful. They don't have a great army. They're not wealthy. At this point in time, they don't even have the land. The land they're about to inherit grows rocks, right? I mean, it's just they're not, they're not special in themselves. What makes them special is the fact that they have God's presence among them. Right? It's, it's their relationship with God that sets them apart and makes them unique. And so the Lord gave them a, a rhythm for worship so that worship would stay at the center. He gave them a place for worship and a pattern for worship. The place is the tabernacle. You recall that when they set up the tabernacle, they literally put the tabernacle in the center of their community. Right? All, all of the other tribes would be around the tabernacle with God in the tabernacle, in a sense, representing his presence in their center. And then when it was time to move, they'd pack up the tabernacle and they would follow, right? They would follow the Lord. He would lead them and guide them. He would stop and then they would build their community again around worship. So you give them a place and Pat's going to talk about, Pat Cole's going to talk about that uh, in more detail next week. But he also gave them a pattern. That's the, the feasts and the festivals that created this structure for their lives in, uh, in worship. In other words, God's saying, um, I'm at the center of your life, and I'm going to tell you how I want to be worshipped. This is good worship. This is acceptable worship to me. This is how I want you to show me that you love me. Now, let me illustrate. In, um, in my home, um, my wife 
from time to time brings me uh, problems. And, and I'm actually a good listener, right? I'm a really pretty good listener. I'm very reflective and I'll ask questions, right? And I, I can hang in there. But I'm also a really, really good problem solver. Like God created me to solve problems, right? So I have this threshold. I'm listening. I'm listening and, then I, and I'm really good as a listener up to this threshold. And then I hit this threshold and then I step in and start to solve the problem. So I'm, I think, well, you know, why would she bring me a problem if she didn't need my expertise in solving it, right? That's, that's, but I, I know it's not right. And, and as soon as I, I dive into that solving mode, I mean, as soon as I say it, we've been married 24 years, I'm like, no, wrong, right? right? She, and she's like, no, I choose to have you love me by listening, right? Not by solving. As it says in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it's the way of death. That's the way of death, right? Just, hey, just listen. This is how I want you to love me, right? Religion is us telling God, this is how we choose to love you. That's the sin of the golden calf. True worship is giving God what he tells us, what he wants from us, what he deserves from us. And so God gave them these rhythms, right, to structure all of life around worship. The first rhythm that he gave them was daily worship. So what time did your day start? Uh, some of you, I know we're here really early. You came, set up crew, 5 a.m., whatever, you got up. Um, maybe you took that extra hour and then some, and you just, just rolled in, right? The day just started. But your day began when you woke up, right? It always does. The day begins when we wake up. But in Jewish reckoning, the day begins actually when the sun goes down. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, it says this. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Do you see the different pattern? There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day, the third day, the fourth day, all the way through the seventh day. The day began when the sun went down. So the sun would go down and then the Jews would gather for the meal. They would give God thanks that he had provided for their day. They would fall asleep. And as they were sleeping, God was working. So when they woke up in the morning, they were just stepping into the work that God was already doing. Right? So in their minds, every day they were reminded God is already at work, and we're just entering into the work that God is already doing. God's the initiator. God goes before us. All right, so there's a pattern of daily worship. There's a pattern of weekly worship. If you look at Leviticus 23 and verse 3, it says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwellings. So this is a repetition Right of the fourth commandment, Deut- uh, Exodus 20, verse 8, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And uh, as I'm sure Matt explained, you know, this is the commandment that has the longest explanation of all of them. And in Exodus chapter 20, the people were reminded that God worked and God rested. And God didn't work and then rest because he was tired of his work. God rested so that we'd have a pattern for how we should live our own lives. And we're reminded God's the creator of all things. He's the provider of all things. So we stop and we reorient our lives around the Lord. In Deuteronomy 5, it's a different explanation that's given. The explanation that's given is this. Work for six days and then rest because you are not slaves any longer. Don't, don't labor like all of the nations around you who never get to rest. It's seven days a week, every day of the year. But you're not slaves any longer. You're free. You're my children. So take a day of rest and trust me to provide for you on that seventh day. So they had daily worship. 
They had weekly worship, and they also had an annual cycle of worship. Deuteronomy 16 describes that. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So uh, three times a year, that is three, in a sense, clusters of festival times, all of the families were supposed to go up to Jerusalem. Now, here's a little chart to kind of make sense of this for you. Um, if you don't want to scribble this down, it'll be on the website within a day or two. Uh, early spring, there was Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, right? Those all occurred kind of as a cluster together. 50 days later was Pentecost. Then you had all the long days of summer. And in the fall, a cluster of three more festivals, all of which had um, physical and material reminders, but also spiritual reminders, right? So let's just kind of walk through each of these. You look at chapter 23 and verse 4 of Leviticus. It says, these are the appointed times of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So the first festival of the year, right? The, the thing that marked the new year was a reminder that they were a redeemed people. As Matt explained, the, the, the angel of death came through Egypt. And for those families who put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses, that angel of death passed over and death did not occur because there was the death of a substitute. Instead, God used that moment to take Israel out of Egypt and redeem them for themselves. So the, the very beginning of their worship cycle, right? Their reorientation is to remind them, you are a redeemed people, right? You belong to the Lord. Second, excuse me, second is unleavened bread. Look at verse six, chapter 23, verse six. It says, then on the 15th day of the same month, there is a feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days, you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Oops, keep messing that up. Thanks, guys. Um, unleavened bread reminded them that when God's redemption came, it came quickly. Right? It came so quickly, in fact, you didn't even have time to let your bread rise. Later on, they began to infuse new meaning into that festival, which was now that we're a redeemed people, we should live differently. So leaven became a symbol of sin that had crept into their lives through the years. So they would go throughout the house in elaborate rituals, and they would completely clean the house, right? Spring cleaning and find every little piece of leaven reminding them, as God's people, our lives should look different. Third feast is first fruits. Verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land which I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests, right? So this is the, the first fruits of the barley harvest, the first harvest that they had. They would bring the very first, reminding them that God was the one who would provide life for them and trusting God that there would be more to the harvest, right? That the rains would come at the right time and in the right amount, and then they would stop and they would get sun and God would provide life for them first fruits. Then they would wait 50 days and they would celebrate the feast of Pentecost or the feast of weeks. Verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath 
then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So it marked the, the end of the spring harvest, the beginning of the wheat harvest, and then later they used this festival to mark the giving of the law itself. 50 days later. So we have a cluster of three, then there's one, then the long days of summer. And in the summer, they're, they're finishing up the harvest. They're preparing the fields for the fall harvest. They're pulling out rocks. They're pulling out weeds, right? They're laboring and waiting for the, the cooler weather to come, for fall to come, which was marked by the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 23. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. So trumpets gave them notice that atonement was coming. It called all of the people out of the fields to Jerusalem because in 10 days they were going to have to do business with the Lord. But at atonement, they would have to, they'd have to have a reckoning for the sin in a sense that had accumulated in the nation for an entire year. So it'd be a time of, of fasting, not feasting, a time of, of mourning, a time of repentance, it was a day of atonement for sin. Verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On exactly the tenth of this seventh month, it is a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord. And they would fast and they wouldn't feast. Because on that day, they would have to Think about the sin of themselves personally, but also the nation. So on that day, remember uh, our tabernacle being uh, modeled after heaven. One priest would go into the very presence of the Lord, right? So if the tabernacle was heaven, the holy holies pictured the throne room of God. And inside the throne room of God, there was a throne. That was the Ark of the Covenant. And only one man, the high priest, once a year was allowed to go in. In fact, uh, if someone entered in any other time, they would die, right? This is a manifestation of the very holiness of God, the presence of God. So according to one tradition, they would actually tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest. In case he died in there, no one would have to go in and, and pull him out and maybe die as well. A, another tradition said that they would have bells on his robe. So if they didn't hear the bells, he had stopped moving. <laughs> Time to drag him out, right? This is, the, this is the very holiness of God, his presence. To whom he said to Moses, remember, no man can see me and live, but once a year I will allow one high priest to pull back the veil and he'll come into my presence. And he'll come into my presence with, with blood, with an offering for the sins of the people. Because the ark represented God's throne, and as he sat on his throne, there were wings of cherubim. Uh, Isaiah tells us that the cherubim surround the throne and they guard the holiness of God. And the mercy seat was considered, in a sense, God's chair. That's the lid of the ark. And as God would sit on uh, his seat and he would look down upon his people to bless them, but also to evaluate their lives and to judge them, he'd, he'd look down into the ark and he would see three items, we're told in the book of Hebrews. There would be uh, Aaron's rod that had budded, there'd be a jar of manna, and there would be a second copy of the Ten Commandments, all three of which reminded God of his people's sin, right? The rod which budded reminded him that his people were stubborn and rebellious and didn't want to follow his authority. The manna reminded God that in spite of all of his provisions, his people grumbled and whined and complained about what they didn't have. Ten Commandments reminded God that as soon as he had given them, given the Ten Commandments, they had broken the first two and they had worshipped a golden calf. And then throughout the year, they had continued to break the commandments. So 
God is sitting on his judgment seat, and he's looking down. He's seeing the sin of his people, and the consequence of sin is death, but the priest comes in, and he covers the lid with blood, right? To atone means literally in Hebrew, kafar, to cover. So he smears over the covering with blood. Now, as God looks down upon the sin of his people, he doesn't see it any longer. Instead, he sees blood, right? Blood covering his people, and he can pass over or postpone judgment for another year. But in that year, what happens? Well, the blood dries and it flakes off and the priest has to come back in every year. So the writer of the Hebrews says there's actually not a removal of sin. There's an atonement or covering instead of just a reminder of sin year after year after year. Sacrifice has to be made. So it's, it's a really heavy day. It's, it's a, a day of mourning, a day of fasting. It's a day of repentance. But at the end of the day, it's a day of hope, right? There's grace given. We have another year. God's mercies are new every morning, and the cycle doesn't end with atonement. It actually ends with tabernacles, which is a celebration of feasting. Look in verse 39, chapter 23, verse 39, it says, On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So the, the, the culminating festival and celebration of the Lord is uh, it's a camping trip, right? And some of you are like, oh, that's horrible. Right? I, I hate to camp. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the other end. I, I love to camp, but I get it for you people who don't. Uh, my wife, when we got married, she'd never been camping before, but you know, again, it's a good husband. I thought it'd be really good for her to learn to love the things I love. So yeah, you know, you should camp with me and you should learn to love camping. And I don't know, we've been married a year or two and she's a gamer. So she goes, okay, I'll try camping. And, um, you know, I'm an experienced camper. So I didn't make a plan. I just threw all my stuff in the trunk and we drove to Colorado. And uh, when we got there, I started looking around for a campsite and I saw off on the side of the road, this awesome looking place. And I unloaded all our gear and I hauled it out there. And as we begin to set up, right, she's helping me. It was like, uh, like dragons. I mean, there were mosquitoes. They're just huge, and they're just pummeling us, and they're just you know, eating us alive. And I'm thinking, okay, we can endure. We can endure. I'm like, ah, we can't. So I loaded everything back up, and she's you know, already miserable, and put it back in the trunk. But I wasn't discouraged. I thought, I'm going to find a place. This will be awesome. She's going to love it because I love it. And I kept driving, and I looked on the side of the road. I found another spot, a little, little creek. right? And you could tell people had camped there before. It's nice and flat. Hear the creek bubbling, you know, gurgling by, and it was amazing. And I got out my camp stove, put up the tent, and I made her this gourmet freeze-dried meal. It's like shrimp or something. It was awesome. And, you know, we're enjoying the evening. Sun is setting, and as the sun's going down, it's getting close to time to go to bed. I hear this, this truck driving on the side of the road. It's just, you know, just, and do uh, you remember those tiny little Toyota trucks, right? You still see them every once in a while. They're just tiny, tiny little things on the road. Well, this thing's going, up the side, and, and the back end is way down because on the back of the this tiny little Toyota truck, there's a full-size Chevrolet truck, 
the whole truck, right? So he's going just like super slow motion. The windows are down and there are these two dudes driving the truck. Huge, like super fat guys, no shirt on, really hairy, only a few teeth. And they turn and they smile at us like this. You ever seen Deliverance? I was like, right? And Tristy looks at me and she's just freaked out, right? So we went to bed. She didn't sleep at all the entire night. We have camped once, right? One night of camping. Well, last year she said, I'll try again, right? 23 years of trauma recovery. And she's willing to try one more time. So some of you go, oh my gosh, camping, that sounds horrible. But here's the deal. It's the perfect time of year in Israel. The weather's perfect. It's not rainy. It's dry. There are no mosquitoes. And you've got all of your family and friends. You're all out there together celebrating redemption, right? God brought his people out of Egypt. And in the desert, he provided for them, right? Even though they only had temporary dwellings. But now you have permanent dwellings in the land. Enemies are removed, right? And there's prosperity. And it's a picture of the kingdom of God, right? When Messiah comes back and you have no more threats, right? Instead, you have perfect abundance, perfect health, prosperity in the land, reconciliation to the earth, reconciliation to one another, right? It's the culminating celebration of the time, right? So that's the annual cycle, all designed to keep worship at the very center of their lives. But there's more. Excuse me, I'm messing this up today. There was sabbatical worship. Look at verse, uh, chapter 25 and verse 3. It says, six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. And during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land will have a Sabbath year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food. Yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and animals that are in your land shall have its crops to eat. In other words, God says, I'm going to provide for you so well that you're going to labor six years and the seventh year, all you're going to have to do is just go into the land and eat off the land. You, you can labor six days and have a day of rest. I'm going to give that as a gift to you. You can labor six years and then have a year of Sabbath rest. And trust me, you don't have to live like the nations around you because I'm a good God. I'm not a God who takes from you. I'm a God who gives to you. So even in their their annual cycles, every seventh year, there was a reminder. There was also generational worship. Look at chapter 25 and verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. So what would happen to some families is they would get in financial trouble. They would have to sell their land. But so that the family didn't get trapped in generational poverty, the land, which was the source of wealth, would return to the family. It'd be a year of release, right? A year of freedom. Sometimes Jews would have to sell themselves into indentured servitude. But on the 50th year, they'd be released, right? They'd get freedom. It was a reminder every day, every week, every year, three times a year, every seventh year, every 50th year, right? It was a reminder to put center, worship at the center. Now, let's catch our breath for a second. That's probably more Leviticus than any of you have ever read at a single setting, right? Um, I was thinking about it the other day. I've, I've actually only done two sermons ever on the book of Leviticus. 
Um, my son, a couple, uh, it was last year, he and his, one of his friends decided that they would read the L books, right? Luke and Leviticus. Got through Luke real quick. Leviticus was tough. Probably none of you got up this morning and said, let me have a quiet time in Leviticus, right? I mean, it's just, it's, we don't go there very often, but is there anything we can gain from it? Yeah. Leviticus is a reminder that God's intention is for us to structure our entire lives around worship. And so often, I think even in, in our Christian circles, when we think of worship, we think Kenny, right? What, what Kenny does for a few minutes on Sunday, that's worship. And maybe you extrapolate and say, well, we can call listening to Matt part of worship as well, right? But that's the end of it. When in fact, what the Bible tells us is all of life is intended to be worship. Certainly, the fruit of our lips, that's, that's praise. God says, yeah, that's like a, an offering to me. But also, when you discover your spiritual gifts and you serve others, that's an act of worship, right? When you give of your wealth, that's like a fragrant aroma, we're told, going up before the Lord. Paul says that the Gentiles that he shared the gospel with and then built up in their faith, that that's an offering to the Lord. Your work is an offering to the Lord. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, right? There's absolutely everything in your life can be turned into an act of worship. I don't know if any of you have ever read um, Brother Lawrence, 17th century French monk, wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And in his monastery, his, his duty was to work in the kitchen. And what he set out to do is try and figure out a way, how can I make my time in the kitchen just as much an act of worship as my time reading, meditating, praying? And he said, if I'm consciously aware of God's presence, when I'm sweeping the floor, washing the dishes, this becomes an act of worship. So listen, what, listen to what he said. He said, think often on God by day, by night, in your business, and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. Leave him not alone. Get that? So pursue him actively, consciously in absolutely everything you do in your home, at work, in your diversions, in your hobbies, in your offerings, in your praise, in your evangelism, in your discipleship, in absolutely everything, right? Put worship at the very center of your life. Stay in rhythm with worship. Now, how is this possible? Now, I'm going to argue it's possible because... Oh, I was going to give you a definition first. Here we go. Worship is anything and everything we do think, say, or feel with the goal of honoring the Lord. In other words, let's reframe the way we think of worship. Let's put it at the center. Now, how is it possible? I would say because redemption is the rhythm of history. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, all of the events of your life and all the events of human history, God is moving toward redemption and reconciliation. In other words, what, what God is doing in time and space is moving himself back into the center of your life. That's God's intention. And we just have to be consciously aware of that, right? the movement of God in our personal lives and in history. So, let me illustrate that for you. Um, have you ever noticed that all of the redemptive moments in Jesus' life happened on a festival day? You ever notice that? When was Jesus crucified? Remember? I hope you, Matt just preached on it. <laughs> Passover, right? Jesus was crucified on Passover. So Apostle Paul makes the connection explicit. He says, for Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. We have a better Passover lamb. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, Passover Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just cover them over. He removes the sins of the world. Jesus was crucified on Passover. Jesus was buried on what festival? 
Anybody take notes? Unleavened bread. And he's buried on the festival. And unleavened, unleavened bread. So notice, you read all of 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, it says this. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So at Passover, God's people are redeemed, right? They're bought. They, be, they become his own. And because we are his own, it's a reminder that we should live different lives, not just personally and individually, but as a community. So uh, what Paul explains in Romans chapter 6 is you've actually been buried with Christ. And since you've been buried with Christ, you can say no to sin. Right? You can say no to sin, which is represented by the metaphor of leaven. So clean it out. Clean it out. Live, it, live differently, personally, individually. Live differently as a community. Right? Christ was crucified on the Feast of Passover. He's buried on unleavened bread. He was raised to new life on uh, the Feast of First Fruits. Again, from Paul, 1 Corinthians. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits represents what? The promise of life. Christ is the first fruits, and those who follow him, then we become first fruits, right? We become those who are infused with the life of God. Now, what happened next in redemption history? Remember? Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and then what? Right, 40, year, 40 days, right? 40 days, he's with his disciples, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, and then he says to them, now I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. Wait for what? Well, Pentecost, exactly, right? They didn't know it at the time, but really they, they could have guessed, we're only going to have to wait 10 days. Because on Pentecost, God would pour out his spirit. Jesus promised it in John chapter 15. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So, God's Spirit is poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost, and what do they do? They testify of Jesus, right? Their, their lives are transformed. Now, in the Old Testament, Pentecost marked the giving of the law, which, as Matt explained, was a good thing. The law was a, a good gift, but it contained some deficiencies, right? There, there was no power embedded in the law. And because of, of our flesh, when we hear the law, which is good, something awakens in us that's bad. It's called flesh, right? It's called this bent to go against God. So Paul, as he's expounding the law, he says, you know, as to the righteousness found in the law, and I was I'm blameless, right? A sin would come, I would offer the right sacrifice. I'm all good. I stayed in line with the law. But then I read this commandment that's called uh, coveting, don't covet, which is true. I shouldn't covet. But because of something really broken in me, I said, ooh, actually, you know, now that I think about it, there's a lot of stuff I don't have that I really want. He said, coveting was awakened in me. The desire to have more or different from what God has given me. There was no empowerment. Paul would say, the letter kills. It's good, but it kills because it actually awakens sin. But the Spirit gives life. So now we are the church Empowered by the Spirit, what comes next in redemption history? Comes next. Uh, summer. Long, hot days of summer. Church, we are living in the summer. Now, because we are in the Bible Belt, we expect it always to be spring. And we're shocked and we're surprised when we're rejected or we experience persecution. 
But we live in a very unusual place and, in a sense, an unusual time. If you look at the history of the church, right? From the day of Pentecost on, the church was always a small, persecuted minority. And the church, again, not surprisingly, was sometimes surprised. They're like, well, if we're following Jesus and he's the Messiah, then why isn't it all good in our lives? Why isn't there, there, there perfection and protection? Peter would say to his followers, he'd say, you know, don't consider it a strange thing when you encounter all of these trials and tribulations. That's, that's normal because you're living in the summer. The long, hot days of summer when you go into the fields and you pull out the weeds and you remove the rocks and you're getting ready for the harvest and you're bringing in the last of the harvest, right? Church, that's, that's where we live. But even Peter's followers, they said, it seems like everything's continuing as it always has been. Where's the promise of Jesus' coming? Where's the promise when he's going to come back and set all things right? And Peter makes this observation. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So church, get out in the fields, right? Get out in the fields in, in the long, hot days of summer and work the fields because God's not slow. He's just patient. So this is our one moment, our opportunity. We have, as it's been said, all of eternity to celebrate our victories. Right now, we have this one short hour of summer in which to win them, and we, we labor in the fields. Church, that, that's why we continue to be on the earth. We'll worship better in heaven, but we won't have an opportunity to share Jesus Christ and, and be, do the work of an evangelist in heaven. So right now, we live in the days of summer. But summer will come to an end uh, with the Feast of Trumpets. Now, I grew up in uh, a Baptist church, and we used to sing all the time, you know, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time will be no more, when morning breaks eternal bright and fair, right? I, I've got all, every hymn that's ever been sung, it's just locked in my brain, but I never thought about it, right? The word's just kind of embedded in my brain. And uh, I've got a, a little guy at um, Anderson campus, and he and I send videos back and forth, right? So uh, a few weeks ago, he said, Pastor Brian, who gets to blow the trumpet? I was like, that's a great question. I don't know if I've ever thought about it. Angels, I think, you know, angels blow the trumpet, so maybe Michael or Gabriel or whatever, you know, but I hadn't really thought about it. I, I think, you know, probably the more important question is, what's the point of the trumpet? Point, what's the point? Who gets to blow it? Maybe fun if one of us did, but I think it's an angel, right? They blow the trumpet to gather God's people to himself. Paul says, again, 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Right? The, the trumpet is God calling his people to himself in resurrection. But there is, so in Isaiah chapter 26, it says God will call the Jewish people who have rebelled against him, rejected Jesus the Messiah, there will be a trumpet sound, and God will call them to himself. Romans chapter 11, we're told there will be a mass revival among the Jewish people when they realize that they've rejected Jesus and he's calling them to the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Zechariah 12 verse 10. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That is, they will realize but Jesus is the one, not just to, to cover over their sin, but to remove their debt of sin forever. This is what the writer of the Hebrews expounds at length. He says, you, you know, in these offerings that happen over and over and over again, there's just a reminder of sins. There's not a removal of sins. 
And so the high priest would have to go back in every year because the blood would dry and it would flake off and had to be reapplied year after year after year after year. But he said, Jesus, he entered into a better place that is not an earthly tabernacle, was just kind of a, a model of heaven, but instead he went into heaven itself and not with the blood of bulls and goats, but instead with his own blood, his perfect sacrifice, he went into the very presence of God, the holy of holies, to make one offering for all sins, for all people, for all time. It is finished. And finally, one day, the Jews will look on him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him, and they'll realize, no, our debt of sin has been removed in Jesus. But mourning won't be the end of the celebration, right? Tabernacles, right? That's a picture of the kingdom. Now, stay with me as I walk you through this progression. John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh and it dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, uh, he dwelt among us, is literally in Greek, he tabernacled among us. Right? He, he pitched his tent among us. What's the point of the tabernacle? It's a visual illustration of the presence of God amongst his people. So what did God do? Then I'm going to put a new tabernacle amongst you. My son is going to take on human flesh. The word became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst. But then Jesus departed and he sent his spirit. So where is the temple of God now? That's right. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. You know, know, know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You bear the presence of God. And not just you personally, individually, but in Ephesians 2, Paul says, but you also together are being built together into a holy dwelling of God through the Spirit, right? So that when you personally reflect the presence of God in your life, and then when we corporately together, in, in the way that we relate to one another, we reflect the presence of God together, God's, the people in, in, on earth see, uh, see, the, see pre- God's presence on earth, and they're drawn to worship so that God will once again become the center of their lives because that's how human life was meant to be lived. Right? Human life doesn't work well other than God being the very center of your life. If he's not the center, you're out of rhythm. Right? It's, it's spiritual arrhythmia. What happens is other things capture our affections, and God has to be placed at the center again. So how do we apply this practically? Uh, if I can get the, the folks who are serving communion to head the, to the back, and let me just give you a couple of uh, ideas and then one really specific application. So my life gets out of rhythm, and I know it gets out of rhythm sometimes because I'm just uh, passive, and it can be kind of an innocuous thing. It's just a, a new hobby and my attention is diverted, but sometimes it can be a sin. It can be an alternative affection. And I can begin to think life is my job or even life is my family or life is this possession or whatever, right? And then God's not at the center of my affections any longer. And I have to actively put him back, right? Because worship by nature, right? And centered worship by nature is an active thing. It just doesn't happen accidentally. You won't just wake up and all of a sudden God's at the center of your life. But you can't do it passively. It's, it's like your relationship's uh, with, with the people around you that you genuinely love. You have to actively love them. That's why all the language of worship is active, right? Lift up your hands, bow down, bend your knee, right? It's active language. So I, I love my wife. Uh, I, I like my wife. I enjoy being with her. We, 
we have a great time. But if you were to hypothetically come up and ask me, so Brian, I know you, you say you love your wife, but, but if you told her recently, I go, no, I haven't. I mean, I told her a while back and nothing's changed. We're good, right? We're good. I don't need to keep telling her. She knows. Okay, well, you don't tell her. Do you, so do you, do you serve her? I go, no, you know, there's really no act of service that's worthy of my love for her. So I don't serve her. So, you, okay, you don't serve her. So do you like buy her gifts or something? How do you show her? You go, no, really, there's not a gift that's valuable enough to demonstrate the, the, the height of my love for her. So no, I don't do that. So you don't tell her, you don't, you don't buy anything for her. You don't, you don't serve her. You don't show her anything. I don't know. I don't know if you love her, right? You need to, you need to change something. You need to express it. And worship won't become the center of your life. That is affection for God being first and foremost. It won't happen in your life unless you actively, intentionally put God at the center. So, real simple application for you this week. I want you to take maybe 30 minutes and then literally list the activities of your life. So, what do you do first thing in the morning? Well, I I wake up and I take a shower. And then I get my cup of coffee. Or actually, I wake up and get my cup of coffee. And then I have my shower. And then I get the kids dressed. And I drive them to school. I drive to work. And then I work. And I check my email. I write these letters. I check on my staff. I do, you know, whatever. I, then I come home in the evening. We make dinner. We work on homework. We play some games. I mean, literally write out all the activities. And then next to it, how can each and every one of those become an act of worship? How can, how can I... Uh, experience the presence of God as I'm waking up and having that cup of coffee. Thank you, Lord, that you made the bean. (laughs) Such a great nectar. What a wonderful way to start the day. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, thank you uh, that I had a good night of sleep. I thank you that I have work. I thank you that we have children. I thank you that uh, I'm able to provide for my family. I thank you for the people that I work with. I thank you that that I have opportunity to, to influence them for Jesus in this time. I thank you, Lord, that my kids have a school to go to and that, we, that they get to have, do homework. I thank you that they have minds and they can think, right? I'm just constantly reminding myself in all of these little daily activities, right? That's, that's putting worship again at the very center of life. Right? So uh, as we close and share communion together, I want you just to ask the Lord if there are any affections that have kind of crowded him out and maybe displaced the Lord as the very center of your life of worship. Um, if I can ask the men to come forward and serve us, uh, we're going to wait until everybody's served, then we'll take communion together. And I want you just to uh, take a moment and ask God to speak really clearly to you through his spirit. Um, communion is an opportunity. It's a moment. We're told to uh, listen for conviction, uh, but also listen for hope because Jesus has died and been buried and risen from the dead. We're not slaves of sin death any longer. Instead, we have life in Christ. So let's just take a moment and listen to the Lord, and then we'll take the cup and the bread together. Peter wrote, you know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. You're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together.
after they'd taken the bread, he took a cup also, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. My blood, which is sacrifice to remove the debt of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, I thank you for rescuing us from futile, foolish pursuits, putting other things at the very center of our lives. Thank you that you've removed the debt of sin, but, but also that you've um, taught us how to, how to learn to put you at the very center of our lives. And I, I do pray, Father, that even in this moment, that we listen to your spirit, that we would be reminded uh, maybe of things that slowly have crept in or quick decisions we've made that are really just not life for us. And we get back in rhythm with you. I pray, Father, we just find that place of freedom and joy in you. And I thank you again that you haven't left us in, in darkness and chasing after silly things. Instead, you've shown us life in Christ. It's in his name we pray.